The amazing thing about real estate is it offers so many amazing advantages that other investments don't. We were talking a little bit about gold. I won't absolutely demolish gold. That's not this discussion. Here's what gold definitely doesn't offer. It definitely doesn't offer cash flow. It definitely doesn't offer tax advantages the way that real estate does. If somebody has a secret gold tax advantage, I haven't seen it. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth on Main Street without buying yourself another job. Our goal is to give you the tools so that you can refine your real estate investing strategy to create the life that you do not want to take a vacation from. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Nick D'Angelo. Today we're digging into two massive topics that are very important today. We're digging into first inflation, talking about the causes of inflation, digging into how inflation impacts real estate, what real estate investors can do to skate to where the puck is going. And then we also dig into high net worth investors, what they're looking for today, and what Nick has learned by working with numerous high net worth investors in his real estate investing business. There's a lot of great knowledge in here. Nick has a wealth of experience in real estate investing, and we're digging into some very important topics that are relevant to the real estate investing world today. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lodes. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. To date, I've acquired, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $250 million of commercial real estate acquisitions. If you'd like to learn more about potentially partnering with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com or click the link in the show notes. We'll look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Once again, our guest today is Nick D'Angelo. Let's go. Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us how you got started in real estate investing and what brought you to the space? Sure. So this year marks my 20th year in real estate. So it's a long story, but the short, short, short version of that is I started off, I had the opportunity to beg and plead and negotiate my way to work for free for some high net worth families and family offices early on, just because I knew they were successful. I knew this is where I wanted to be. And with the 2008 crisis happening not long after we went to town, we were buying up to 10 million a week in different distressed assets and doing a lot of acquisitions on that side. From that point, we had so many assets purchased and had a lot of success that we started Saint Investment Group because these investors said, hey, we wanna be passive investors. They saw their high net worth, they had plenty of things going for income, just adding another business was not attractive. So I started Saint Investment Group at that time to help them with that asset management. And so we started raising money for more deals and doing syndications and funds along the way. And this year we just crossed 206 million in assets under management. The vast majority of that is split between industrial throughout the United States for our hard assets. And then we also invest in, I think we are just about to pass the 500 loan mark for our single family mortgage portfolio. So the kind of, that's the long and the short of it where we're at today and a little background for you. That's awesome. So you're doing very big things. And I want to talk in a bit about your experience working with high net worth investors and how their preferences may change or may not change over time. But first off, you like to talk about inflation. That's been the big topic of the last couple of years. 
So let's dig into that. Talk about inflation, especially given your perspective as a veteran of the real estate investing industry. Yeah, I think inflation is something very interesting. We had this big inflation scare in the U.S. And we had this, oh my gosh, inflation, 9% all over the headlines, right? Summer of 2022. And that started going down and that's pretty amazing. And the Fed had ramped up or has ramped up rates today at the highest increase in the shortest period of time, the highest, fastest trajectory we have ever seen in the U.S. history. So, and, you know, arguably the greatest economy of the, that the world's ever seen. So all that to be said, the Fed hasn't really gone down on rates. If anything, we're still seeing increases or discussions of increases during every Fed meeting. So the question is, why is that? And I think it's because the Fed understands that the inflation spike we saw in mid-2022 actually is not the full rumblings of the underlying inflation causes. And I think there's many of those. And I think we have a long-term trajectory of about a decade wrestling with that ahead. And the Fed's goals of that 2% mandate for inflation, I think are a long way off unless rates continue to go up and we have kind of a, a bumpy road ahead for that. Wow. So inflation as a phenomenon, generally, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. My perspective on it is that as long as we have a fiat currency and a central banking system that is based around, you know, essentially paper money representing a certain amount of value, they're targeting a certain rate of inflation over the long term. Like you said, 2%. It's a long-term phenomenon that will probably be here certainly longer, at least I think longer than you and I will be here. But the key thing is this elevated rate that we've seen within the last couple of years, the 9% of, of last year and the still elevated, but somewhat slightly lower rates of inflation this year. Sounds like you're saying your expectation is those elevated values into perhaps the next decade is what your expectation is. Absolutely. I don't know if I see it as extreme as 9%. One, because I, you know, we can give the Fed a lot of crap and they, you know, a lot's due their way for a lot of different decisions. That said, I think that they are out ahead of this. And I think that people say, well, why aren't they lowering rates? Why aren't they doing that? I think they see that, that there's demographics and major changes throughout the U.S. that are leading to where we're at today. So let's take the most recent numbers, right? Like opinions out of it. Let's just take what the Fed is saying. So just in the last couple of days, one is the jobs report, right? The expectation, I think it was around 170,000 of jobs. What actually happened was about 370,000 of new jobs filled and created throughout the U.S. So we see a robust and successful job market. That's great for the U.S. economy. But is it great for inflation, right? One of the biggest tools the Fed can use as they raise rates is to see unemployment also spike and go up, extremely deflationary. So it's interesting to put the Fed in a position where are they actually rooting for a worse job market for higher unemployment? Because if you speed up or if you back up a little bit several weeks here, what we saw is the CPI come out increasing to 3.7 annualized. So that doesn't look like the CPI is going down. That actually looks like inflation is increasing. CPI, consumer price index, right? The measure of inflation is actually still going up, even with these crazy rates, record setting rates at record setting paces. 
So then if you back up further and say, well, why is the CPI going up? You can look at the producer price index, the PPI, the measure of who produces goods and kind of is a, often a forward indicator, early indicator of the CPI. That increased 0.7% in one month leading up to this. So that puts us at a very interesting point where there's actually a lot of increase in the producer price index. And if that leads into the CPI, we actually have some big numbers increasing on the CPI side. And I have a few reasons why I believe that's the case and some threads that we're pulling to really get to the bottom of what we see as the cause of that. But just sticking to the numbers with no opinion, that's kind of what we're seeing on the forecast or not on the forecast. That's what we're seeing already happening today on the inflation numbers. Okay. So I believe every cloud has a silver lining and we're not even necessarily looking for a silver lining here, but as real estate investors, the great news is that, at least for now, they can't just print new real estate, right? We don't see that happen. It takes years and years to put up new real estate. That doesn't mean every single property is a great deal. You know, certainly the business plan financing, that all matters. But what's the good news here? What's the, the upside or the, you know, the actual angle that we can take as real estate investors to skate to where the puck is going, get ahead of the trend and to benefit from inflation if it does indeed continue in the way that you're expecting. So first off, you quoted Wayne Gretzky, which is just a way to my heart. Okay. So <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge hockey fan, lifelong hockey fan. So all that said, I think there's a lot of good news. And I, you know, I know I just preceded all this with a lot of doom and gloom. The reality is I think the biggest and what we're seeing as the absolute biggest causes of inflation are actually demographic. We see the baby boomer generation, which is the largest we've ever had in the U.S. and the wealthiest we've ever had in the U.S., widely successful generation. No matter what you can say about personal opinions on different decisions, politically, economically, all the stuff, they are a very successful generation. And from the ages of 55 to 65, we know in the U.S., that is the wealthiest period of time that we will ever have as in each generation, we see this over and over. Children as the biggest expense are leaving the house. You're also in a position to receive the highest amount of income. Your home as typically a family's biggest asset. That is getting paid down more rapidly. So you see a huge increase in assets, net worth, income, and a huge decrease in expenses. But after 65, we see people retiring right? We see that trend going very, very heavily. And so this last year, yeah, 2000, yes, this last year was the average age of boomers was 65. It passed that. So we're seeing boomers decline in the workforce consistently and they're taking their money with them. So that's interesting. That's an interesting dynamic. It would be much worse if inflation was caused by things that were not by a really wealthy, successful generation existing, right? If we were dealing with inflationary trends like many other countries, like, you know, maybe Germany or China, their issues demographically are exponentially worse. The U.S. as we sit today is literally in the best position demographically of the entire top tier economic. So that's all the good news. This is a transition. This isn't a breakdown. Right. So when you say, what's the silver lining? The silver lining is as a system, I've never been more bullish on the US. I think we have many decades ahead of wild, amazing success. Now, strategically, how to make money on that side and the strategies that we're employing for that, we're investing in two areas for that reason of what we see coming up ahead. 
The first and foremost is I'm bullish on housing for many reasons that homeowners today are really sticky. Again, the boomers are sitting in their homes. Many of them have extremely competitive rates, well below market rates today. So most of them would be nuts to sell. It's a very sticky home ownership demographic. Additionally, the average homeowner has over $200,000 in equity, right? So this isn't 2008 we're dealing with. This is a structured, systematic, more rock solid foundation, a fortress on the single family side. So what we do is we invest strategically into the mortgages behind those. So oftentimes, you know, we'll either buy at a discount or buy mortgages that have had issues. Maybe they have a rolling balance from COVID, et cetera. But overall, we're so bullish on the fam or the single family and multifamily sphere, the housing sphere that we move towards mortgage notes within the single family space. And we're really, really excited about what's ahead for that. On the other side, on the, so that's our debt side. On the hard asset side, I think, I, you know, we, what we're seeing consistently is that the U.S. is moving to nearshoring or onshoring for manufacturing. So we're, we have a heavy investment, a heavy focus in U.S.-based industrial assets. So we're buying a lot of industrial product. We shifted a lot of the portfolio that direction on our side. And I think that's the silver lining is that a lot of manufacturing is coming back to the U.S. We have a super rock solid housing long-term, a rock solid housing situation. And we have a really wealthy generation with a lot of money that supports the system as the boomers are uh, moving towards retirement. Okay. That's great. Appreciate the explanation there. And on the topic of this industrial shift, the current population and demographic trends, I think a great guy for the listeners to check out is Peter Zihan. He has a lot of great information around that. Talks about uh, the broader picture, especially in light of the rest of the world. Great YouTube channel, done a, gr a lot of great talks. So Peter Zihan, if you want to dig deeper into that topic. Now let's swing over into your experience working with high net worth investors and individuals, what they're looking for today and principles that you've learned by doing business with them over time. I'm sure there's quite a lot there. So let us know where you think the best places to start. Oh, absolutely. So what I'll say is this, is my career, especially early on, I knew what I didn't know. I had an idea of how little I knew in certain areas, especially real estate, which there's a lot of amazing courses, a lot of amazing networks, a lot of amazing education opportunities today that just didn't exist several decades ago. So the best source for information was going to the source, the people that were doing it successfully. So that's really, it's not, it wasn't rocket science what I did. It was just trying to get next to the right people. Luckily, I had some, you know, family. I had very, very close family and some close family friends that I saw successful in the entrepreneurial space, that transitioned to more of investing, that were, you know, moving toward the higher net worth. So I wanted to stay close to them and then also increase that network with people that were doing that as well. So to get in with, you know, working with some of these people, it really, it was a free situation. I said, oh, I'm going to work for you for free. And the unanimous decision or the unanimous response I got was free is way too expensive. We can't. <laughs> and that's so I was like, you know, oh my gosh, a little taken back. I'm not getting hired for free, right? What's wrong with me? And what I didn't understand was how high value these individuals time was, right? So in order to be around them, even family members, you had to add value. And well, how I added value was through real estate marketing. I said, I can lease spaces for you. I can bring your company 
to, you know, the new era of marketing online. So we started doing more of like the early LoopNet co-star predecessors. We started doing a lot of the Craigslist stuff. These were things that were revolutionary. People were sending faxes back and forth with what deals were on the market at that time. It was crazy. So I offered a, you know, updated tech advantage. Hey, this is how we'll update marketing. I brought in a couple of lists that I compiled and put together with investors that wanted to invest that I had compiled from local real estate investment clubs. And that's how I bartered my way in for three, right? From there, what I've learned is that they have stages in their life, wealthy people, wealthy individuals. And I've been able to work with them at different stages. Again, I get to make money with some family members along the way too. Some of our you know, best investors, I get to call family members, make money with them along the way. And that's only expanded with different, you know, many, many dozens of new investors since. That said, the shift has been what we've seen away from how much money we can make and how amazing the returns are. Let's say that started around the 2008 era. And let's say that lasted up until the last handful of years. And the shift we've seen is demographic as well is the high net worths, especially the boomer demographic moving towards retirement. And now the discussion has shifted completely away from how good a deal is, which is shocking. Now it's how secure, how consistent, how flexible. Those are kind of the big three that we're consistently seeing. So we've shifted strategies along with that. And where in the past we were, you know, having really amazing IRRs and having a lot of success on that piece, the wealth building phase of one of the largest investment demographics today is shifting to consistency. So that's how we're shifting as well with that really letting our investors dictate to us their needs. So we're working with a lot more IRAs along the way. We're working a lot more with people that aren't going to have a huge wealth upswing because they don't want the extra risk. That makes sense. Once you hit a certain net worth in your, your personal life, taking a lot of risk off of the table makes the most sense because you don't need growth anymore. You need to preserve so you mentioned how secure, how consistent, and how flexible. We don't have time probably to dig into all three of those, but I'd like to hone specifically on how flexible. I think folks probably understand how secure. We probably have a mental model for that. How consistent, we might know what that means. But the one to me that seems the most difficult to pin down is probably how flexible. So what do you mean by that? So the amazing thing about real estate is it offers so many amazing advantages that other investments don't. We were talking a little bit about gold. I won't, you know, absolutely demolish gold. That's not this discussion. Here's what gold definitely doesn't offer. It definitely doesn't offer cash flow. It definitely doesn't offer tax advantages the way that real estate does. If somebody has a secret gold tax advantage, I haven't seen it. Okay. <laughs> Might offer appreciation. I would argue that now, there's a speculative nature to that, depending on how a lot of other things go. All that to be said, we know that real estate offers huge opportunities in those, especially on the hard asset side. So as far as the other side goes, what we really wanted to pin down was more of how do we have a flexible approach? Because most real estate funds have a five to 10 year horizon. You see a lot of big guys shifting from that three to five years, that seven to 10 years, because it just offers more stability over a market cycle, right? So how do you get flexibility with real estate? How do you get the benefits of real estate with the flexibility? We found it, it was in assets that were able to trade with more liquidity. Assets you could get in and get out of more flexibly. 
So it was depending on the assets. Now, on our industrial side, I would tell you there's not flexibility on that side. You absolutely must buckle in and expect a five to 10 year horizon. And that will have the best yield, the best stability, the best everything. But it, what it won't have, what it won't have is flexibility. So on the mortgage side, we buy a lot of mortgages. We work with a ton of mortgages on our side. The nice thing is the mortgage industry is very small. The people in the secondary mortgage market are very tight knit. And there's a lot of trading, inner trading that happens. So on our side, what we're able to do is one, if we have somebody that, you know, is investing and needs their return back or they need their capital back, we can trade mortgages to be in or out of them and return capital. So the flexibility of that asset is much different. It's still in the real estate sphere. So the boat is still the real estate boat. If real estate's relatively stable as a boat, it still exists in that world. And in this market, real estate debt has a lot of advantages that we haven't seen for quite a while, especially as it relates to the flexibility we talk about and also the capital stack, which is kind of a little bit more of an advanced term, but that between those two things, that's offered the flexibility we're able to get not other places in real estate right now. And I would bet going back to a comment that you had made earlier about the amount of equity that the average homeowner has today can make that strategy a bit more compelling to someone with that high net worth that's looking for preservation as compared to, say, just pre-Great Recession when the equity was kind of skinny in, in most cases. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. You look at 2008, I think it was, hold on, I'm trying to rack my brain for it now. 2008, I think I might even have a note. I think it was 97, that's what it was. Median LTV in 2008 was 97%. So essentially, if the market went down, it was smarter for homeowners to just walk away, for investors to just walk away. You take property. I don't want to wait this out, right? I don't want it on the books and I'm not making payments to the negative. Today, the average LTV in the U.S., is 67%. Oh, I'm sorry. No, the average LTV today is 42%. Excuse me. Well, so that's the even better. LTV's so low as it looks today that they're so insulated, hundreds of thousands in equity. So I just think that's a really, really rock solid asset class right now for those reasons that the underlying assets and the other underlying industry of mortgages is so well insulated with those huge gaps between the market fluctuations and how much equity and and loan to value people have in the market today. Wow. Okay. So before we take a break, I'm curious, I'm not asking you to talk about anybody specifically, but for your typical high net worth investor, how did they build that high net worth? What are some examples maybe? So we work with naturally, I'm an entrepreneur, lifelong entrepreneur, started and sold multiple businesses. We just gravitate towards people in that similar position. Many are entrepreneur free thinking, which is what leads them to real estate initially anyway. So because that demographic is more free thinking, more strategic in different ways that are outside of the norm, many people are just going to the stock market, mutual funds, middle of the road, bank CDs right now. So that demographic that's saying, what else is out there? Yeah, I trust secondary markets. I trust alternative markets. They're looking for things like we're typically investing in. So it just is a more natural fit. I speak entrepreneur. I speak business owner. I've been doing it for a long time. So I like those people. It's more of a natural fit. Our team likes those people. It's more natural fit for them as well. So we kind of scale up to a higher tier investor. And most of them are somehow either C-level or ownership 
or founder. That's who we really like. Okay. So you're in California, the stereotype of an entrepreneur in California being tech. Are they tech people or other industries? I've got to say the minority of our investors are now from California. We oh, see them already from actually outside California. Early on, they were all from California. They're all from California. It was more of like uh, a network approach. What we found over concentrating with a small number of investors was we actually, it was very rocky. It's very rocky for the deal flow. It's very rocky for acquisitions. So we put a big focus on taking what we learned with our key investors early on. Again, we still work with them decades, great relationships, but basically bolting on and expanding that audience significantly to a nationwide approach, we found a lot of success with that. So it's a lot, I would say tech is definitely in there, especially, you know, including professions. We get a lot of doctors and lawyers, et cetera, accountants, like our, you know, the models and how we do things, but it's really nationwide and it's a pretty wide variety. The one thing we typically see from investors, they're older than average. We're seeing more of the boomer demographic that we work with very consistently. We're seeing much less of kind of like the millennial generation. We skew much older in our demographics of the product offerings we have. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Wow. A lot of lessons today. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our spot. Are you investing in real estate passively, but don't know what red flags to look for? Well, we've got the answer for you, a free seven-day video course on red flags in passive real estate investing that you can get right now by going to PassiveRealEstateCourse.com. Seven days, seven videos, seven red flags in passive real estate investing. Check it out, PassiveRealEstateCourse.com. Now back to the show. Answer. All right, Nick, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. But we're actually changing those three questions up. It's been over 600 episodes. I'm honestly ready for a change on these three questions. Let's get to it. Are you ready? Absolutely. I'm ready. This is exciting. Great. First one, what is your number one book recommendation? Oh, I'm a big reader. So this is heartbreaking to have to drill down. I'll, I'll give you the best. I'm going to give you two. Can I cheat? Can I cheat That's on this? Fine. Okay. The first is The Obstacle is the Way. I Great think book. is a remarkably good book that retunes your vision of life to a completely different perspective. And it's basically the things in front of you are the way. They are the things that you need to be going through. The problems are the part of the solution. That's one. And then the other that I'm really enjoying right now and I've actually listened to and, and read on repeat is The 33 Strategies of War by Robert Greene. It basically breaks down the best strategies throughout history of different generals, of different emperors of different political groups, things that are fantastic to really understand human nature in a different way and why me, why people make decisions. Nice. Two great recommendations. Now we're moving on to question number two. Who inspires you? Man, these are great. My forefathers, like early family is honest to God, the truth. I have, my family's an immigrant family from Italy. So the people that came before me, my dad and grandfather's generations, are extremely motivating. They're people that I deeply honor and deeply care about and kind of their legacy and what they've left behind and what I need to take forward. I have three sons. So I think about this for them all the time. What am I giving them? Not just uh, as far as money or assets or opportunities, but mindset. And wh what am I giving them that was given to me by people that came before? So it's making those people proud and, and making sure that we're going up levels every generation. And then that I can also inspire my kids 
to be beating me. I want them to beat me at whatever I do. Nice. Number three here. I always say the third question is my favorite question, and this is no different. This new third question is probably my favorite one here. So think about 80-year-old Nick, looking back on Nick of today. What does he have to say to you, either positive, negative? What's his number one piece of feedback about what you're up to today? I would say think long-term for everything. So if you're going to do something, think about it in terms of can you do this forever or for at least decade plus. So that's health, that's wealth, that's legacy. Health, is your diet sustainable or is your mental health or the things spiritually and you know your virtues? Are those things that you want to live with and look back on and be proud of? For wealth, it's are you making decisions that over a longer term basis will significantly benefit you, right? Are you making decisions that have a long runway or is that get rich quick scheme? And I think you need to think long-term with your money significantly. And then, yeah, legacy. What are you leaving behind? Who are you helping? What are you doing for your family? How are you making the world a better place? And I think if you line those up over a lifetime and you really truly focus on those, I think the impact is exponential. And it's really hard to see that on a one-year time horizon or a quarter or three-month time horizon. I think it takes decades to really make the dent and achieve the things that you want to do if you're thinking big enough. So that's one thing that I probably would pat myself on the back and say, perspective, long-term thinking. Nice. Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this knowledge. If folks want to find you on the internet or get in touch, where can they track you down? So we dug into a lot of economics and strategy today. Those are some of my favorite discussions. We have a ton of those actually on the Saint Investment website, saintinvestment.com slash resources. We're always doing presentations and webinars and big topical deep dives. So we have a ton of that there. If any of this was interesting to people and they want to learn the expanded discussion on that or even ask questions on it, we're doing webinars and have resources on the resources section of the Saint Investment Group site. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Appreciate that so much. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.